0: The Bible is filled with these uh, warning signs all through it, kind of big skull and crossbones that say, hey, don't, don't drink this, or big hazard warnings that say, don't go this way. See, there's all through the scriptures warnings that this is not the way to live. This goes, this goes down to destruction. This goes down to the grave. Uh, I think God even works through the circumstances of our lives providentially. He, he's working uh, to help us to learn uh, to, uh, to, to do things the right way, to learn that this, this leads to grief, this leads to misery. Uh, and we can turn from that way. We can repent. Uh, we can turn toward God's ways. You now, for some of us, Hopefully, this will be more and more of us as the generations go by. For some of us, uh, we learn from the warnings in Scripture. and We avoid a lot of the grief that comes as a result of sin. Some of us learn the hard way, but praise God, we learn. And then turn from our way uh, and and miss out on a lot of the grief that, that is ahead for those who continue in sin. And there are some fools who never learn. We want to look at the Scriptures today, and what I hope you'll learn from the Scriptures is to not to go the way of the fool, to not go the way of the rebel, to not find the grief that that comes from sin. That whether you have known some of the misery that comes from sin, or whether you are one who is young and simple and and don't yet know those things, you can miss out on the sin, uh, the grief that comes from sin, and you can know eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, through faithful obedience to him. Today we're going to be in 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17, that's where we're going to start. We'll mainly look at chapter 18, but we want to look at the last few verses of chapter 17. And what we'll see first is hospitality to the weary. Hospitality to the weary. Second Samuel 17, we're going to start in verse 24. 2 Samuel 17, verse 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. That's what it says. Then David came to Maaniam, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Ragalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness." Now that first paragraph verses 24 through 26 you see this summary of, of, of Absalom crossing and, and, and Absalom 's army so this is, this is how things are, are lining up. David is God's chosen king. Absalom is David's rebellious son and Absalom has murdered his brother Amnon and he has rebelled, he has flattered through flattery, deceived all of Israel and now he is trying to kill his own father. So this is who Absalom is and and all of this is staying in the family. So um, Joab and Amasa and David and Absalom, they're all cousins. And this is a part of what God had said in, in chapter 12, that all of this would be a part of David's household, that this would be a part of uh, the, the consequences for David's sin there. And so all of these things are happening there. And, and, and the thing to recognize here is, uh, on the one hand, uh, David has just had a near-death near miss twice, so he gets out of Jerusalem right before Absalom comes. He gets across the Jordan right before Absalom comes. Here he is getting across the Jordan. But Absalom has to keep seeking David. He has to kill David. He can't stop, won't stop until David is dead. But God through his orchestration of all of these events, all of these friends in David's, uh, in David's path, even some of these enemies in David's path, God keeps using them and keeps working through them to bring David to safety, to bring David to deliverance, to bring David to, to salvation. And then you also see when David crosses uh, the Jordan, he finds some people who are ready to help him, and it is an unlikely crew. The first guy is Shobai, who's an Ammonite. So one of the characters that we met in chapter 15 was this guy named Ittai the Gittite, a Philistine. That is, one of the, one of the ancient uh, enemies of Israel. I mean, hundreds of years they've been fighting the Philistines. Well, they've been fighting the Philistines for hundreds of years. They've been fighting Ammonites even longer than that. But he you have Shobai the Ammonite coming to, out to help David. Then you, have, then you have this other guy, Makir. Makir the son of Amiel, he's from the household of Saul. Saul, for a number of years, had tried to chase down David and kill him. Uh, All through uh, David's reign, there is this kind of seething animosity from the house of Saul toward David, but not from Makir. Mekir is somebody who's ready to come out and, and, and help David. And, and even when you, you think you're, gonna, you're back to go to war, who do you really want on your side? You want some big, strong warriors. And David is going to have a big army. He's going to have commanders. He's going to have people help him. But, but that's not who he finds on the other side of the Jordan. Instead, he finds uh, Barzillai, an 80-something farmer. But I want you to see that God is using ordinary. This is the way the kingdom has often, if not always, advanced is through ordinary people. I want you to recognize you, you don't have to be uh, great or special to serve God. In fact, most of us, if not all of us here, are not great or special. We are ordinary people who have served a God who is great. And here's what we, here is our responsibility to what to play whatever role, to live whatever assignment God has given us, to take whatever God has given us to be a steward over, we're to use it for God. That's what these men are doing. And they're doing it at great personal risk. So they you think about what these men are doing, it's not clear who's gonna win this war. If, if they go out and they aid David, they're aligning themselves with David, they're, they're putting themselves with David, and then if Absalom wins, what's going to happen to all the people who lined up with David? Well, they're certainly not going to have the high positions in the kingdom. And more than likely, they're going to have uh, a ransom on their head. They're going to be running for their lives, the way David is here. But these men, contrary to what you would expect, you got all, you got all Israel deceived and going out with Absalom, and you have these men, uh, one who is a foreigner, uh, one who is uh, a part of Saul's house, and one who is just a very old man waiting to the end of his life. They are putting their, their, li- their own lives, the lives of their family, uh, their own personal property, they are putting it at risk in order to help David. That's the kind of devotion that we're supposed to have to Jesus Christ, to say, whatever it costs me to follow Jesus, I'll do it. To put all of our, to, to in a sense, now these men don't lose everything. And in all, for all practical purposes, most of us, many people throughout history have not lost everything for following Jesus. Though we know that some have. But we are all saying, it's all for my king. There is no, there's nothing with hell. There's no, there's no sense of security. There's no sense of comfort. There's no, there's no money. There's no, there are no goods that I, that I need that I'm going to hold on to and say, these don't belong to Jesus. These are for me. The rest is for Jesus. And, and I'm going to hold on to mine, and this will take care of me. And then, you know, this is what Jesus can use. No, these men are saying, my, my whole life, my whole family, all my property, all my possessions, all for Jesus, all for the king that God has chosen, the one that God anointed, the God, the one that Israel chose. So we're going to be with him. And then just think about the the practicality of it all. What is a, if you're going to have an army, if you're going to field an army in exile, what does an army run on? Stomach. What do these men bring out? They bring out food. They bring out things that are going to. This is, this is weariness. I, I want you to think about it. One of the things I, I really. What are some of my favorite parts of the Pilgrim's Progress? I don't know if you ever read that. I encourage you to read it. One of my favorite parts is this journey of a man named Christian. It's not subtle. You know, Christian is on his way to the celestial city, he's on his way to, to heaven. And there, there are hard places, and there are places where he goes wrong. But but ultimately, he makes his way. One of the things that's that's so often a part of the journey, though, is these little rest stops. There's a little arbor here. There's a house here. There's a rest stop here. On the way to the kingdom, into the kingdom of God, there will most definitely be trials and tribulations. There will most definitely be difficulties. There is most definitely a necessity of for endurance in the Christian life. You have to endure through difficulty. I also want you to recognize, God is not going to crush you. When, when your strength is about to fail, God's going to come with help and strength and kindness. Sometimes, often... It's going to be other people. Often it can be people you don't expect, people you don't look for. Here are men who, for all we know, they have no, they have no real history with David, maybe, maybe a little bit, but there's nothing except this is God's king. And they come out to help David. And sometimes we're just helping other people just because there are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're helping them. We're showing hospitality. We're loving them. We're sharing, we're sharing our goods and, and what we have. And we're, we're giving everything that we have for Jesus Christ. So we see hospitality for the weary. We see hospitality for David. Now we're going to turn to Absalom. And we there we see judgment for the rebellious. Pick up in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 18. Uh, judgment for the rebellious. This is what it says. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. the king said to the men, I myself also will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we... Flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth ten thousand of us, therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you I will do. So the king stood at the at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought on the, in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the, by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men, the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told David, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt." But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if if I had dealt treacherously against his life, And there is nothing hidden from the king, Then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I would not waste time like this with you. He took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, uh, ten, uh, ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself... The pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. You see there in verses 1 through uh, 5, you see this, uh, this council that David has. So he's got, he's got his army And he divides it into three. He's got these three commanders. And he says, I'm going to go out with you in person. Now we know earlier that Hushai, who had been working as a spy for David, told Absalom... Hey, what you really need to do is gather up your army and you go out at the head of the army. And this all appealed to Absalom's vanity, appealed to va- Absalom's pride. Hey, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out as the great leader. Everybody's going to look at me. I'm going to be riding on my mule. That's going to be awesome. Everybody's going to be ch- chanting my name and talking about Absalom and, and being a part of my army. And I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be the king who delivers battle, uh, delivers victory for the people. Well, Hushai tricked Absalom into doing that precisely because he knew that the only person who needed to die to end the rebellion was Absalom. Now, David has these three men. He says, I'm going to go out with you and they know, what do they know? They know Absalom only needs to kill one man. If he kills David, the the rebellion is over. David's, David's Attempts to retake the throne is over so David you stay back here and you don't go out with us we don't want you to die you're worth the whole army and they say well, you're worth 10,000 of us that's basically what they're they're saying you're you're worth the entire army you're the one we're doing this for I think one of the things we've seen throughout this kind of section where we're seeing counselors for Absalom and counselors for David. Recognize the value of good counsel, good advice. People who will tell you things that will really be helpful to you. Also recognize that the difference between good counsel and flattery. Hushai flattered Absalom. He appealed to his pride, to his vanity, and eventually gets Absalom killed. These men, they don't appeal to David's pride. They say, you're wrong. They say you can't do that. They say you're crazy. They correct him. And David is humble enough to listen to his commanders and to go with their suggestion. You've got to learn humility. We want, we want, to, we want to do two things we want to surround ourselves with godly people who will give us good counsel. They'll they speak to us in a way that is consistent with Scripture. They will they will be people who show by their lifestyle that they they know how to live in accordance with God's wisdom. We want to surround ourselves with that. If you're a, if you're a young person, you're you're thinking about what kind of friends do I do I need to have? You need to you need to surround yourself by with friends who will lead you in the right direction. You need to surround yourself with mentors, older people, wiser people than you. You need to listen to their, listen to your parents. Surround yourself with these people and listen to what they say. And cultivate humility. If we we are humble, then flatterers won't trick us. They won't deceive us. And we'll be ready to listen to, uh, to other people when they say, you know, I don't think that's the right way to do it. And we'll be kept from a lot of bad situations, a lot of bad paths if we're humble, ready to listen to people who are wiser than we are. And, and, and we'll, find, we'll find success in many areas, in many ways. Most importantly, we will find a kind of a way that walks along with God and lives by his ways. The other thing that David says is he's letting people there. And I, I probably even put kind of, mine is paragraph, my Bible's paragraph. I probably put a new paragraph there where he's talking to the commanders. He says, hey, one other thing. He's watching everybody go out. And everybody hears him. The whole army hears him. He says, "Deal gently with Absalom." It's probably—I mean—that's too much to ask, really. I mean, we're about to go to battle. We're going to try and save our lives, your life, the whole kingdom. And uh, at, and David says, "Watch out for watch out for my boy Absalom. Watch out, watch out for for him. Be, deal gently with him." That's really where the focus of the chapter is, and you kind of see that when in the description of the battle. You look at verses six, of, uh, 6 through 8, three short verses about the battle. And here's what you find out. There was a battle in the forest. 20,000 people died. More due to the forest than even what you would account for just ordinary battle. And then David's people won. We learn that, that God... Delivered Probably the, the, whole, the whole speaking about the forest, uh, lots of times God worked in battles for Israel through, through, natural, through the natural world, through storms, through hailstorms, through the forest. There's probably a roundabout way of saying God is the one who really delivered David today. I mean, think about, think about even the fact it happens in a forest. It didn't have to happen in a forest. Could have happened anywhere. God worked things out so that it happened in a forest, and he worked things out so that David wins. God is, God is, is everything in these chapters is so kind of subtle. It's not overt. It's not, it's not in your face. We didn't have certain verses in there that kind of said, you know, this is what God's doing. This is what the Lord had wanted to do or decided to do or ordained to do this we just think, hey, it just, just happened to happen this way. We know that nothing happens to happen. Nothing happens by accident. God is, God is working. It happened in a forest because God wanted it in a forest. And, and it happened that the forest worked to the advantage of the more skilled uh, men in David's army rather than just the simply large army that Absalom had. God, God did that. God ordained that. There's much more material given to Absalom. So this is what happens to Absalom. He's on his mule, uh, riding through the forest, and uh, the, the mule jumps or goes through or goes under some branches, and he gets his head caught in the limbs. Remember who Absalom is. This is, the, this is the man who is handsome, more handsome than anybody else in the whole kingdom from his heels to his head. This is the man who has... Uh, the hair that is that is it weighs like five pounds every year it's the it's the handsomest head it's it's also the head that is filled with vanity and pride and selfish ambition and it is his head that keeps him suspended in the air from a tree just hanging there and there's a guy who finds him now i think uh, you know maybe if you kind of trying to reconstruct it. Maybe he got his head caught and he's like crying out for help. The guy goes and finds him. Here's Absalom. Because of his pride and vanity, going out in the battle, selfish ambition leading to his rebellion, head caught in a tree. This guy finds him. And then this guy goes and finds, he could have, think think about it. He could have found any commander. He could have found Abishai, he could have found Itai, uh, two other commanders. He could have found, could have found one of them. He didn't find one of them. He found Joab. Now, if you don't know who Joab is yet, me we'll just give you a, a background, kind of his modus operandi, his 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 way of doing things. Uh, Joab, there was once a man who killed his brother, uh, and then uh, Joab invited him in peacetime into a little dark corner underneath the gate, uh, underneath the gate, and then he stabbed him to death. It was Joab uh, that David said, uh, that David used to put the hit out on Uriah the Hittite so that Uriah the Hittite was killed. Later on, uh, Joab is going to kill another commander, kind of Judas style. He's going he's to go in and to, to kiss him on the cheek or, or whatever. And he just happens to have a knife in his hand, his other hand, and grabs him by the beard and pulls him in and, and stabs him in the gut. Later on, it's going to be Joab who tries to help lead a rebellion against David and Solomon. And it is Joab who one day goes to finds his life taken uh, right there holding on to the altar, holding on to the horns of the the bronze altar inside the tabernacle, inside the tent of meeting. That's Joab. Joab's evil. Joab's a bad man. Joab is, is a man with seemingly with a seared conscience, okay? So he knows how, to, knows how to do things. He knows how to do things for David. He's loyal to David in that way. But he's an evil man with evil intentions. That's the guy that this guy finds to tell about Absalom. Oh, oh and plus, and it doesn't, doesn't hurt the story any that a couple of chapters earlier Absalom, to get Joab's attention, had burned all of his crops. Absalom burned all of Joab's crops. So maybe even some personal vengeance at work here. Well, you see, that there's a little dialogue. Now, here's, the, here's one of the things to notice about this chapter. There are lots of things that, that we don't need to know. And most of the time, when you read in the Old Testament, if it's something that we don't need to know, it leaves it out. It can often be very concise. So when it puts something in... That we don't necessarily need to know, it's actually because we need to know it. So you kind of have this, kind of have this, uh, kind of have this dialogue between Joab and this man. And Joab says, uh, "You didn't kill him," and the man said, "No, no, we heard, we all heard what the king said." And Joab says, "Hey, I, I would I will give you ten pieces of silver and like a nice new belt and I, I would have fixed you up, brother, man. I, you, you should have killed him." And the man said, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch him for ten times, a hundred, a hundred times more than what you are promising for anything. Now, this is what, this is what I think is happening here. I think that this man represents the kind of response that you're supposed to have toward God's king. You know, he he represents like the king speaks and the king says. You do what the king speaks and the king says. And yet, we know that God. That's God's revealed will, and yet God is also doing something different. If you'll just listen for a second to 2 Samuel 17, verse 14, says the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. That's what they had all determined, Absalom, and all the men of Israel said. The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Hith- Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm Upon Absalom. Why Joab? Because Joab is the right kind of man in the right place that God does not approve of, and yet God uses his evil intentions and evil actions to bring about God's purposes, which ultimately are good. When we're thinking about this, we ought not. Forget what Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And used it to save all these people. Well, you can think of the same thing here with David. What what Joab intends for evil, God uses for good, even for the salvation of David and the kingdom. We ought not forget what Peter says in Acts 2. The hands of lawless men crucified Jesus Christ and yet it was all according to the definite plan of God. It is not possible to fully grasp. We can't can't get can't get our hands or our minds out to the end of what God is doing in all things and yet we know that God uses the evil intentions and the evil actions of people in time for things that He intends for good purposes and good ends. In fact, the best of all possible ends. The, the eternity will be better because God does things the way He does them rather than some other way that we in our finite human minds might think would be better. We cannot. We cannot try to justify ourselves, as we've learned from Job. We must not try to justify ourselves or go with our own thinking as opposed to God's way of thinking. God's thoughts are right. Always. And anyway, God uses this man, Joab. Uses this evil man and Joab's... And, and of course, we even know the character of Joab even more. Kind of, the man hints at it. I know what you really like, Joab. You are not faithful. You don't keep promises. You don't do what's right. If, if I had killed him... And we got before David, Joab would have said he did it. I, I didn't. I didn't have anything to do with it. So anyway, Joab, uh, Joab picks up three javelins. Uh, I didn't. I didn't run across any commentators who said this, so I might be wrong. But I just kind of thought you pick up three javelins. You pick up three javelins from three different people, so you kind of have plausible deniability. I, it wasn't my javelin, you know, no smoking gun, that kind of thing. Anyway, he picks up three javelins, and evidently. He puts those three javelins in Absalom while Absalom's still alive. Then they cut him down. Then his ten armor bearers kill Absalom. Now then, look at Absalom. Now I want you to pay attention to the symbolism of all these things that happen to Absalom. So Absalom is hung in a tree, and then he is, he is killed. When they kill him, they throw him in a pit. And they cover it up with these great big huge stones. They, they make a big mound of these stones. Uh, then it, it reminds us that there is this, there is this pillar uh, made in Absalom's name, and then that he dies without a descendant. He dies without anyone to carry on his name. So there's a, there's a lot of symbolism here. Let's start with his head being hung in a tree. Deuteronomy 21, funny enough, talks about a rebellious son. And what you should do with a rebellious son. Then at the end it says, "Cursed is anyone who has hung on a tree." We saw this played out with Ahithophel. Ahithophel hung himself. This was the evil, traitorous, treacherous counselor to David who went over to Absalom's side, and he's hung in the tree. And Deuteronomy 21 says, "Cursed is everyone who has hung on a tree." So this is a way of saying, Absalom, in his rebellion, he died. As one cursed by God, then he gets thrown into the pit. He doesn't get thrown into his. He doesn't get buried with his family. Doesn't get buried with with Jesse's family or with David's family. He gets thrown into a pit, and then they pile up these stones on top of the pit. Now, little little Bible trivia for you: Where else in the Bible are there these big stone stone piles over rebellious people? If you go back and you read Joshua seven, Achan. Rebelled against God and took coveted and took what did not belong to him. And because of that, thirty-six people were killed in the battle against Ai. Thirty-six men died because of Achan's sin. Well, Achan was found out, and Achan was stoned to death, and then there was this this pit dug for him, and then this big pile of stones. And everybody who goes by the pile of stones says, It's where Achan's buried. Don't be like Achan. That's also what happened to Absalom. They, they threw him in a pit and built a, a, big, a, big, uh, a big pile on him. A big pile of rocks on top of his body. All to say, don't be like him. Now then, Absalom had set up his own pillar to, his mem- to, to, rem- to be remembered by. Just like Saul did in 1 Samuel 15. And Saul ended up dying with all of his sons... So that his, So that his name was wiped out well then you 're reminded here that Absalom he built this because there was no descendant in the ancient Near East in Israel, in the Old Testament, it was very important to have someone to carry on your inheritance that is the land passed from family to family if you if your family line died out, it was like your entire existence died out you, you didn 't leave any legacy you didn't leave anything to be remembered by. That's what happened with Absalom. So what is this saying about Absalom? Absalom is cursed by God. Absalom is under the same kind of, uh, he's the same kind of rebel, the same kind of covetous, selfishly ambitious, vain, prideful kind of man as Achan. He's the same kind of of man as Saul was, who, who rebelled against God and was rejected by God and disobeyed God. He's the kind of man who he and his family have no future because of his sin. That's what happens to men who rebel against God's king. You understand that? Like the, like the Bible is setting up this, there's this big pile of stones in Israel to say, don't be like this guy. There's a big, there's a big story in the Bible with a big pile of stones and a, and, and a lot of, I mean, a lot is devoted to say, don't be like this guy. You don't rebel against God's king. You don't rebel against David. You don't rebel against God's, against David's greater son, Jesus Christ very clear in the scriptures what happens to those who rebel against Jesus Christ. It is, it is the curse of God. It is, it is no life throughout eternity. It is, it is punishment in hell for those who do not obey the Son, who do not believe the Son, who do not submit to the Son, who who rebel against God's Son. It is not an option There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. To rebel against God's son is to bring yourself under God's curse, to remain under God's curse. And if you rebel against God's king, if you rebel against Jesus Christ, Absalom's end is your end. That's where you're headed. Unless. Unless someone takes the curse for you. Because Jesus Christ was also hung on a tree. Jesus Christ was also cut off without descendants, apparently. Jesus Christ was also buried in a borrowed tomb. And yet Jesus Christ, in taking our curse, in taking our death, he makes it so that we would be ransomed, that we, our, the price for our sins would be paid for. If you trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ takes your place. He takes your place. He takes your curse. He takes your death. And he makes it where you can have eternal life. He makes it where you can live forever in blessing and peace and righteousness. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He's the one who's hung on a tree to take the curse of God against our sin. Believe in him. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus Christ. Don't continue in rebellion. This this tells us what happens to rebels. This tells us about the the justice of God. This this is a kind of, you see in, in Absalom, this kind of poetic justice. That is, there's, there's this kind of symmetry between what a person, the way a person rebels against God and the way that they end. What you sow, you also reap. There's this kind of symmetry. We have to know that when we don't see the, the end of that symmetry, some of us, we read a lot of stories in the Bible, enough to know that it's true that what a person sows, that they also reap. The way that you rebel against God leads to the way that you end. So that we should know that it's true. But in life we often don't see the end of the ark. But we, we believe in judgment day. We believe that there is, there is a symmetry. That there is no sin that is ultimately not punished. But you can either face the day of judgment the way that Absalom does here. Or the judgment against your sins can be taken by Jesus Christ. Sin is always punished in one of two places. Either on the cross or in hell believe in the lord jesus christ and be saved be saved from the curse be ransomed from the curse be delivered from the curse be delivered from death be delivered from from, from a, 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 an eternity of punishment be delivered from your sins don't end up like absalom remember remember absalom Remember the end of the rebel. The last section we're going to look at is grief for sin's consequences. Grief for sin's consequences. We do have to end the story. We'll pick up in verse 19. It says, Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running uh, alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Bless me, the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king. For the lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well with the young man Absalom. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Again, I'm just going to kind of sum up what happens here. You've got Ahimaaz, who's been on David's side for a little while now. And Ahimaaz said, hey, I want to I deliver the news to David that we won the battle. He's going to be so excited. He's going to be so relieved. I want to deliver the news. Joab said, no, you're not going to run today. No, you're a good guy. You're in David's service. We're going to get a foreigner to run the news to David, okay? We're going to get somebody who's a little bit lower down, not so honored. We're going to get him to run. we get him to run. And so he chooses a Kushite, that is somebody from lower Egypt to someplace some like that. And so we'll send him. And so he sends him. Then, uh, then Ahimaaz says, I- I'll run. Let me run still. Job says, hey, you're not, you're not going to get any reward. You're not going to make it in time. We already sent the Cushite. But if you want to run, run. So Ahimaaz runs. He probably takes a longer route, but it's, not, it's probably flatter. And uh, he gets there first. Why why do you why do you write this part? Why why is this part in here? Why why do we care? I mean, I mean, I I thought I I, I told some friends of mine, you know, come what may, he said I will run. I thought somebody should put that on like a back of a, a running T-shirt or something. I mean, yeah, I, I but I mean besides that, you know, what is it for? What is the what is it for? Well, this is what I want you to think of. It it's to to build this suspense. Think of the think of the two runners. Okay? It's like it's like you're watching a horse race, you know. Wayne's Gabbit is ahead and then, then Andy's arch enemy is pulling it. Or whatever, you know, like, like all the, you're watching this horse race and, and it's this suspense. You don't know who's going to win and you don't know, you know who's going to make it first. And, and, and you're waiting and, and you have these two, two sets of news coming to David. Which, which one is David going to respond to? How is he going to respond? What, what is today going to be like? Is it going to be a day of victory and celebrating, or is it going to be a day of defeat and mourning? And you have to think about, you remember that a lot of these stories probably go from, from mouth to mouth. You know, maybe they hear this read and then they tell their children about it. So you're also you're telling a story around the table and you're building up suspense. How's David gonna respond? when Ahimaaz and the Cushite both share good news with David. And, and, and it it's really summarizes the chapter. Ahimaaz says, the Lord has delivered you. You know what? Chapter 18, God delivers David from his enemies. This is the God, this is the Lord who delivered David, a man of faith and God's chosen king from every adversity. It's true. May, uh, the Cushite says, may all the king's enemies be like this man. That's also part of the message. What happens to God's enemies? What happens to those who are enemies of God's king? They find that they end like Absalom. But what does what David care about? Ahimaaz comes, shares the good news. David says, what about my boy Absalom. Cushite comes and tells David the good news. And what does David care about? He says, what about my boy Absalom? And then he finds out that Absalom's dead. And there's no poetry from David this time. It's just his, I mean, I think as well as you can represent it in words, just his, his mind stuck. My son, my son Absalom. Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my Absalom, my son, my son, just stuck in grief. And I don't I don't think it's just about lo- losing his son. You know, I think I think we, we mourn when we lose people. We we always do. But let's say that your son went off to a battle. And died to save other people. It's a different kind of grief, isn't it? And you know, grieve over a righteous person, over, over somebody who does something great. Somebody who lived, who lived a, a good and righteous and exemplary life. That's it's a different kind of grief. That's not who Absalom was. And we know that this is not all about Absalom. Listen to what. 2 Samuel 12, verses, just read verses 11 and 12 for us. Second Samuel 12, verses 11 and 12. This is what Nathan says to David. This is what the Lord says through Nathan to David. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Absalom is responsible for his rebellion. And he dies responsible. But David recognizes that this this sin that has arisen in his house and this sin that is a part of his kingdom and this sin that has, has split the kingdom and caused civil war, it was his sin. He lost he lost now his third son because of his own sin. And he's just stuck. It's what I want you to remember. It's what I want imprinted on your mind and branded on your heart. Sin always leads to grief and misery. You think, you think when David was walking on the rooftop that day and he saw a really beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop that he thought all this was going to happen? Did he see this coming? No, he thought she was going to go home and that was going to be it. Even later when he plans the, the murder of Uriah the Hittite, he thinks, hey, it's all, it's, all going to be, it's all going to be over. Do you think he's going to, think he's going to end up here? Mourning his son, who has been rebelling against him, who murdered his his other son, who has been rebelling against him in different ways for 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 almost it seems like ten years or more. You think he saw this coming? Sin always leads to grief. Hey, listen if you if you're if you're one who has seen that sin leads to grief. Maybe you've even experienced that sin leads to grief. Praise God that you've learned. Absalom didn't learn. But you, you've learned. You've learned. God God has been very gracious to you. God has not given us everything that we deserve. If If we are able to learn that sin brings grief, if we are able to learn that through our own sin, And then repent of it. We wish it weren't that way. We may have regrets in that sense. But praise God that we have learned the way. We've learned that sin leads to grief and misery and death. If you're young and simple, I mean that affectionately, you don't know better, read the scriptures and learn better. Fear God and learn wisdom. You don't have to to go down the way of Absalom. In fact, there is a lot of grief and misery in life that you can miss out on by turning away from sin, turning away from the way of adultery, turning away from the way of murder, turning away from the way of violence, turning away from turning away from the way of folly. Turn, Turn away from that. Even if you die for the name of Jesus Christ, even if it comes to the absolute worst that a a man can do to you, you have eternal life. And I have to think that dying with a clear conscience is a beautiful death. If it can be said that way. Turn from sin. If you're young, turn from sin. Don't go that way. It leads to grief and misery. You know the one who can cleanse the conscience? You know the one who can who wipes away every tear in the end? It's Jesus Christ. David says, I, I wish I wish that I had died in place of Absalom. But David couldn't die in, in Absalom's place. It's because David was a sinner. But you know, we have a, a king who who had no sin, who is innocent and righteous in every way, and he laid down his life for us. He died in our place. He was a man without sin, who is truly God and truly man, so that he might not only die for the sins of one man, but for many. Trust in Jesus Christ. Hear what Jesus Christ says. The man who builds his life on Jesus and his words... When the storms come, his life, his house will not be destroyed. Build your life on Jesus Christ. Turn in obedient faith toward Jesus Christ. The the obedience of faith. The faith that produces obedience. The faith that produces love. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from sin. Sin leads to grief and misery and death. Turn. Trust in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, we praise you for your unfathomable ineffable wisdom who can know all of your ways who can who can see the edges of your wisdom who can go all the way down to the bottom of your judgments we confess ourselves to be finite creatures We are, we are glad to be made in your image, and yet we understand that we can never know you or your ways as you know you and your ways. Help us to see the deliverance that comes for all those who trust in you and who trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that we, every day, we would know small little deliverances, small rest stops, small places along the way where we would be strengthened. Grant that every, every Lord's Day when we meet to hear your word, and every, every Lord's Day when we meet to stir one another up to love and good deeds, that we would, we would find strength, we would find a little encouragement, we would find a little bit of what we need to keep going in the race, a little bit of what we need to endure while we go through this, this exile on our way home. On our way to the new Jerusalem, on the way, on the way to a, a new heavens and a new earth, to a place where there, there is no more, there are no more tears, there are no more, there are no more evil men uh, waiting to, to stab us in some dark place, but instead there is nothing but light and peace and righteousness. For those of us who suffer, suffer because of our own sins, suffer because of other people's sins, grant that we would, we would be sustained by your Spirit, and then we would hope and trust that one day every tear will be wiped away, every wrong will be made right, we would see that your justice is true and good and right, we would never fail to, to trust in you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who took the curse of our sin on himself so that we might live, so that we might be redeemed, that we might know ourselves to be sons and daughters, to be your sons, to have an inheritance of eternal life. Please forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our folly. Let us be humble in heart, from the heart, and holy. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.